Behind the Bite podcast is part of a network of podcasts that are good for the world. Check out podcasts like the Full of Shit podcast, After the First Marriage podcast, and Eating Recovery Academy over at practiceofthepractice.com backslash network. Welcome to Behind the Bite podcast. This podcast is about the real-life struggles women face with food, body image, and weight. We're here to help heal, inspire, and create better, healthier lives. Welcome. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to the show. I am so excited today, and I just want to jump into the show, and I know I just do that sometimes. I don't have much of an intro. And the reason for that today is because I have a guest with me who is also an eating disorder specialist, um, and she's here to debunk a lot of myths and set the record straight about uh, binge eating disorder. I know there are so many myths and so much confusion, (laughs) um, at least that I hear in my office from patients and also out there. Um, outside of my office about binge eating disorder. And so I'm so thrilled to have with me today, um, Dr. Marianne. She is an expert, like I said, um, and she's been in the mental health field for 26 years and has specialized training in eating disorders. And she's been working with patients for uh, the last 11 years to help them get into recovery. Uh, And before that, she was a full-time academic, and she did that for 12 years and had a part-time eating disorder practice for much of that time. But then she decided to leave the university and went into private practice full-time in 2018. Uh, Dr. Marianne loves working with eating disorders as a therapist and as a coach, and she takes a non-diet feminist approach that helps people of all genders live empowered, authentic lives. She embraces the health at every size model. And... Dr. Marin recently launched the Self-Paced Inevitable Binge Eating Recovery online program to help high-achieving professionals regain their mental and emotional energy by shifting their relationship with food to be fully present in their life. All right, Marianne, welcome to the show. I'm very excited to have you here. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. So, you know, I'm interested to know a little bit about, you know, guest personal life and, um, just wondering if uh, you'd be willing to share a little bit more about you so people listening can know a little bit about you and who you are, how you got here. Sure. Well, it's uh, an interesting story. I didn't set out to be an eating disorder therapist. Um, I I kind of took a roundabout way to it. Um, I was an English literature major in undergrad, and then I actually... Um, spent a year in Siberia uh, where I was doing some like pastoral counseling. And that's when I really fell in love with therapy. So I decided to come home and go to graduate school. And I got my PhD and said, no, nah, I, th- I think I really want to be an academic, but I still want to have the side private practice. And so that's what I did. And um I was working with a lot of chronic pain, uh, people with chronic pain in my private practice, and a lot of them had disordered eating Mm -hmm. uh, behaviors. And so the university where 
I was teaching taught an eating disorder class. And so I sat in on it that summer and read all the textbooks and I just fell in love with it. And so I just really dived into a ton of training. Uh, I'm in San Diego, the University of California at San Diego, their eating disorder center is here. It's like one of the top ones in the U.S. and they do a lot of training for local professionals. So I did that for about three years, got a had a eating disorder specialist supervisor for a year and and really leaned into that in my private uh, part-time private practice to the point at which I loved that so much more than my academic work. So about five years ago, I left uh, academia and turned my part-time private practice into full-time private practice. And so that's kind of the professional route. And the personal route is I myself am recovered for an eating disorder, from an eating disorder. It, it took, uh, and so I actually stayed away from eating disorders for a long time <laughs> because it was just hit too close to home. I, I had an eating disorder starting from around like the time that I was probably seven or eight um, and up and through my early 30s. So it was about um, 25 years. And so, um, and it took a lot of different forms from kind of more of the binge eating, kind of bulimia type, whoop to anorexia, I had phase to back to binge eating, to back to bulimia. And my bulimia was uh, um, binge eating plus over-exercising um, instead of purging. And so that like went round around. <laughs> Um, the merry-go-round until I was a, um, I injured my back from over-exercising. I, so I literally got my PhD in December of 2003 and I injured my back in January, 2004. And so I couldn't exercise at all. And so that sent me into, um, a binge eating disorder spiral uh, and when I came out here to San Diego to be a professor, I uh, was just suffering a lot with my back pain, but also suffering with my eating disorder. And I was able to find an amazing eating disorder therapist and get help and um, find a, a support group that was very helpful for me. And there was a ton of reading um, of my own. and. Um, and was able to recover completely. And so that was happening about the same time as I was, as I was moving from chronic pain to eating disorders. And I vividly remember asking my therapist, like, can I do this with me, you know, being just re barely recovered and, you know, and getting training and stuff on this. And she looked me straight in the eye and said, Marianne, you've lived it. And I said, oh, okay. <laughs> so, um, and although when I have eating disorder clients in my therapy practice, I don't talk about my own history appropriately. So, um, but it's, I, I get the sense that they, they know that I really get it, even though their eating disorder or binge eating issues may look different do look different than my experience 
I really get some of the the pain and the suffering that they go through and, and how hard things are. And I think they feel it at like a cellular level, honestly. So yeah, so it's I'm really, really passionate about helping people recover because it has been such a huge, it's made such a huge difference in my own life that uh, I just can't, I can't imagine not doing what I'm doing because um, seeing people recover is the most gratifying thing. And it's really my life's purpose. So thank you for sharing that. And, you know, I totally echo what you're saying. I love that you, you know, are again, putting out the message I really try to promote on the podcast, which is recovery is totally possible. Um, you know, you know, we're going to talk about myths and, um, things that people erroneously think about binge eating disorder today. But I think in, you know, just the umbrella of eating disorders, people have this erroneous belief that you can never fully recover from an eating disorder, right? That you kind of always struggle a little bit with it. And I really hope people get the message loud and clear that that's absolutely not true, that you really can fully recover. And, you know, you're here saying it, I say it almost every podcast, you know, I went through that myself. And, um, you know, I, I really think that it's important to hold on to that belief because if you do tell yourself, oh, I, I won't fully recover, then that becomes a powerful statement and a belief system. I completely agree. And I mean, I didn't believe it myself. And I went to a support group that promoted like this notion that you're for the rest of your life, you're going to have this. Um, and that, I mean, it was helpful to, in that I was with other people who suffered similarly, but I ended up leaving the support group because I was like, ah, I just don't buy into that. I believe you can recover. And the person who sent that message to me was, I mean, not personally, um, although I do know her now <laughs> professionally, but Jenny Schaefer, who wrote Life Without Ed. And I started hearing about her and how she would walk around conferences with t-shirts that said recovered period <laughs> on it. And just what she has shown in, you know, her, her books and her talks and everything. And, and um, so that was the first that was the first um, glimpse into the fact that recovery is possible. And so she really, she really helped me. So. Yeah. So just to even hear that, like, Oh, it's, wait, it's possible. That's exactly. It's powerful. So. Yeah, totally. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's very different than I think what a lot of therapists are taught in graduate school. And I mean, a lot, a lot of professors believe to be honest, I, that I professors I have heard say, "Yeah, you're going to struggle with it for, forever." I'm like, "Um, no, actually, not." <laughs> but thankfully, the class I sat in on, the professor did not believe that and did believe in full recovery, so that was helpful. You know, so switching over to you know binge eating disorder. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I still hear in my practice over and over again um, people coming in and they have even for themselves a struggle even believing that they have binge eating disorder because there are so many erroneous like messages out there and beliefs about the illness and I know it was the last one to get put into the diagnostic manual probably for that reason um but what are you hearing like what do you typically hear that is maybe 
misunderstood about binge eating disorder that maybe is are the hurdles for people coming in to you know reach recovery or engage in treatment? That's a great question. So if you took uh, all of my clients that I've seen over the past eleven years and you line them up and you said, okay, pick which ones had binge eating disorder, you wouldn't be able to guess because their body sizes completely vary. Mm -hmm. And the reverse is true as well. Just because people are in fat bodies, it does not mean that they are, have binge eating disorder. You know, um, like right now, the prevalence rate is around 6%, including all genders. And you know, there's more than 6% of people in the U.S. in fat bodies, however you want to define fat bodies. And so it's just, um, it's an unfortunate myth. <laughs> and it's it's struggle. So it's, it's a struggle for people because they think, ah, yeah, I'm not going to, um, I'm not going to get help or I shouldn't get the help I need. I'm just struggling. I just need to focus on you know, eating better, healthier, cleaner, blah, blah, blah. And that's just not um, what they need. They actually need treatment. And it's a shock. It's a shock to many people to think, yeah, wow, I actually might have binge eating disorder. I thought, I thought it was just like, I just stress ate or emotional ate, emotionally ate. And I, and I, I hear that all the time as well. People saying, oh, you can look at somebody and know if they have an eating disorder and at that, which one they have. And that's absolutely not true. Mm -hmm. Yep. And especially with the atypical anorexia. Um, I mean, I know we could have like five podcasts on that, but, right. <laughs> um, but like even that you cannot tell based on people's body size. So but with binge eating disorder, for sure, like you, people would be shocked at the kind of clients that come in my door in terms of their struggles with binge eating. And so you, you kind of touched on the, is it stress eating, quote unquote, overeating? Um, you find that there's a lot of confusion about what those are versus like what an actual binge is. Yeah, yeah, and and I I think it's helpful if I'm gonna give them a binge eating disorder diagnosis is go by the diagnostic criteria is they need to have at least one binge um, a week um, for three months, and and where they're feeling a sense of out of control um, with food, and it's really interesting because they're what's out of control. Uh, amount in amount wise for one person is going to look completely different from what's out of control amount wise for other people. So it's a lot of times it's like the feeling about it and then the sense of shame and um, despair that they feel afterward. And then also the preoccupation with food, eating and body image. So somebody is listening and saying, well, I don't think I binge, I, you know, cause I think there is this, uh, you know, I hear this all the time. People say, oh, I, you know, I see on TV or I've seen it's depicted that like a binge is like this enormous amount. It's like all, you know, there's something in their mind that they have as an idea of like, I don't, I didn't do that. So I couldn't possibly, I just, I'm out of control. I need to 
watch my portions. I just need to have more willpower. I just, I just adjust, right? Um, what would you say to somebody listening like that? Who's like really kind of questioning, like, was that a binge? Was it not? Yeah, that's, that's helpful. Well, I mean, for the diagnosis, diagnostic criteria is the binge occurs over two hours. Mm-hmm. So it may not mean this like 15 minute kind of free for all. It may be for some people, but it may not be. It can last over two hours. And then um, there's subjective and objective binges too. And objective binges are where, you know, anybody in your culture, like in, in would be able to see that and would be like, yeah, that's a lot of food, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and it's, and this is an important distinction. It isn't at a food related event like, um, Thanksgiving or some sort of, you know, holiday or something where it's kind of Super Bowl Sunday knows for people who eat a lot of food. And so, um, or, you know, again, depending on the culture. And so, um, so an objective range is like, yeah, that's a lot of food, you know, and then a subjective binge is that, you know, someone out, an outsider may say, well, I don't know, I don't think that's a lot of food, but to the person, it feels like a lot of food and it's causing them a lot of distress. And so I still would qualify that as a binge, even if it's subjective. So now um, it, it might uh, require a different diagnosis if there's other, like if there's a lot of restriction involved and if there's some sort of purging, you know, um, activity, then I would do an anorexia binge purge anorexia. And so, um, so there's some other factors I'd have to look at, but, um, but just that sense of feeling like you're out of control around food, like you can't stop. And for sometimes it's someone just eating a lot of food in one sitting. And sometimes it's someone who gets up and down from the couch to the kitchen, you know, every 10 minutes for two hours. So it just looks different. It's important to ask the detailed question and to really educate people. It's like, it's not all what you see on TV. You know, it all doesn't look like, you know, Dwayne Johnson, The Rock's cheat day, right? Oh, I hate when people post on social media their cheat days. I'm like, not helpful for people with eating disorders. Not helpful. <laughs> so when you're saying that, people, are, why isn't that helpful? Like, oh no, that's what I do. I'm so quote unquote good all week, and I need my quote unquote cheat day. And you know, I'm when I hear that, I you know, like yeah. people ask, well, why is that? What's wrong with that? Um, what? what well, it's it. it it's um the goal of binge eating recovery is to make food neutral Mm -hmm. so it doesn't have a a lot of emotional weight to it um and so if you uh, if you set like one special day where you have foods and restrict the the rest of the week um then what that means is that you're likely obsessing about those foods and you're feeling preoccupied about those foods all week. And so, um, and that is another um, marker for binge eating disorders when you're obsessed and preoccupied and you're thinking about food. That's uh, my clients, they come to me and they say, 
I, th- I was thinking about food, eating, and body image 80 to 90% of the time. Mm-hmm. And I tell them, well, I can get you down to less than 10%, you know, even maybe less than five. And they look at me like I'm nuts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I say, I say, no, seriously. But then later, you know, after they've gotten great recovery, they said, I remember when you said that. And I thought you were totally lying. <laughs> I totally didn't believe you. I said, I know. <laughs> I said, I believe you now. <laughs> I'm like, yes. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So the cheat days is kind of a setup. It's, it keeps people. Um, so it, the way that I explain it is, so if I'm going to tell you, Christina, don't think about a pink elephant. You know, immediately there's like pink elephants flying all around the room or I become a pink elephant or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so uh, it's important to, it's important to tell people to not have this um, sense that certain foods are taboo because what it does, there's something about human psychology that um, we focus on things that people tell us not to focus on, <laughs> you know, like you, you probably weren't even thinking about a pink elephant prior to that. Right. Right. Um, but when I mentioned it, you're like, you don't think about a pink elephant all of a sudden pink elephants everywhere. Mm-hmm. So if you tell someone like, no, really seriously, I don't want you to eat, you know, foods X, Y, and Z. They may have not even thought about foods X, Y, Z, but now they're obsessed about foods X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. And so the cheat days are really a, a, a setup. And then it's, um, I imagine it, I'm not a medical doctor. I'm not a dietitian, but I, from what I know is that it's really also hard on the body, you know, to have such a drastic shift on the days of the week versus like on the shift day or the cheat day when you shift over to the cheat day. So, yeah, so it's very, um, not helpful. And, um, it, I, I see it all in my clients all the time. They're like, I want cheat days. And I was like, well, let's just have those foods every day. And so they're not cheat days foods. They're just food. And they're like, what? I said, no, really, I'm serious. I'm like, but I want the cheat day. And I'm like, yeah, sure. And it's like, you want the high, but let's, let's just inhabit those quote cheat foods and let's just make it food and have it be neutral. So it's not, it's like, you don't even think about it. And again, they think I'm nuts. And again, uh, they come to see that I was right. <laughs> And I'm going to second that. So anyone listening, this is absolutely true. <laughs> Neutralizing the food. So it's not this forbidden thing that, you know, that's you're just waiting to get and, you know, becomes this, this thing. And it, yeah. So anyone listening, I totally agree with her. <laughs> I love the saying neutralize the food. That makes me think of like, like a laser, like you have like <laughs> lasers. I'm going to neutralize the food. Pew, pew. <laughs> It is. It, I mean, it's hard. I think, you know, I went through the treatment as well. And I remember thinking, how is it possible to have food every day? Like what? That's what? But it was just such a foreign concept. I don't know how your experience was, but now I think back and I'm like, why was that so hard? Well, I mean, for me, I was just 
brainwashed. I mean, I had a very diet culture saturated family of origin. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, I grew up in the 70s, 80s. Um, and so, uh, you know, people just weren't talking about eating disorders unless it was like extreme. So the teens I see now just have so much more knowledge and understanding. Um, and parents do for the most part. Um, then how it was, how really even how it was, like, I would say seven to 10 years ago, things have gotten a lot, there's just been a lot better, you know, better um, awareness. And I think social media has helped too. Like people didn't know about binge eating disorder. They didn't really know that it was a thing. I'll say eight, nine years ago, they didn't know, but now a lot of people come to my office like, I think I might have binge eating disorder. Or if I mention it, they're like, oh yeah, I've heard of that. So it's changed, which is good. Do you find that um, people struggle to accept that they have an illness versus like, oh, I'm choosing to do this or I'm, it's something I'm doing wrong? Yes. Uh, And so what I do in the first, first or second session is I really educate people on how eating disorders are brain disorders mm-hmm. and how, um, you know, if they've, researchers have conducted fMRI studies on people with binge eating disorder and compared them to people without binge eating disorder. So if you have people with binge eating, eating disorder, people without binge eating disorder, and the people with binge eating disorder, there's they have areas of the brain that aren't working as efficiently and as effectively compared to people without binge eating disorder. And so, um, and it's also very much uh, a genetic thing. Um, and that uh, the environment just flips that genetic switch and makes people more susceptible. So for me, it was my family of origin environment that flipped the switch. And for a lot of teens and even some adults, the pandemic was a thing that flipped the switch. I mean, you probably saw like like I did that eating disorder rates skyrocketed. And and we're still seeing the effects of that, you know? So, um, uh, so I think that, um, I, I totally lost track of your first question of your question. Well, it is more in the sense of people, you know, seeing someone like us. Right. And, and we're, you know, binge eating is an illness versus like, Oh, oh okay. it's a choice. Like I need to uh, quote unquote diet better or have quote unquote more willpower, or willpower. Or, you know, portion things out better or, you know, it's my fault. I'm doing this. It's, you know, me. Got it. Got it. So what I say is I say, you know, it's um, not about willpower. Um, It's not a choice. It's a brain disorder. It's not your fault. Mm -hmm. Um, And I say that over and over and over and over again until they start believing it. I said, it's not your fault. It's it just you. This is the brain you got dealt. And then I say, look in your family of origin. What about your extended family? What about your, you know, parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, great aunts, great uncles, you know, do they have eating disorder? Well, yeah. I mean, that's what the research says. That's science. 
And so it's not about willpower. So it's really the notion that it's about willpower really is has to do with diet culture and how pervasive diet culture is and how they're pushing that belief. Because if the multi-billion dollar diet industries, um, if they want to push um, their products, their programs, their whatever they're influencing for, <laughs> um, and they want you to buy all this stuff, they want you to believe that it's something about you, that, that you, something's wrong inside of you um, that needs to be fixed. And my approach is that, no, like, it's really, you're, you just have a different kind of brain and we just need to heal your brain and treatment does that. We've seen that. Um, and it's not about willpower and it's not about a choice. It's just as if you had cancer and you'd need to go through chemotherapy treatment. You wouldn't, one question I ask is I say, you say, well, if you had a friend with leukemia would you say oh you just didn't have enough willpower you know that's why you got leukemia like and they say my clients say no <laughs> and I say of course and it's eating disorders is the same thing yeah I think it is a huge struggle like you said the diamond beauty industry really pushes a lot of their own agenda and gets in people's heads and it does get confusing right so people are like wait a minute so it's my, it's a behavior, part of it's a behavior, right? A lot of it, like you said, is the internal workings of the guilt and the shame and what's driving the binge eating behavior. But ultimately I think people, maybe you could speak on this a little bit, but it's the behavior people look at as the actual binging or the relationship with food. Um, and so it seems like, okay, if I can stop the binging or if I can quote unquote eat better, quote unquote healthier, then that's on me. Right. Um, and so I hear, I often hear people say, oh, I'm just lazy or, oh, I know. Tell them, or, you know, they have family members saying to them, well, I'm just looking out for your health. You know, maybe I can help you. And um, even, I, I mean, what, I don't know what your take on is with the medical field, but I often hear medical doctors saying such horrible things that just negate what you and I tell patients. And it just does a number like, oh, well, that's, you know, get you on this program or this diet, or, you know, the worst I ever hear is when they're referred people in larger bodies, you know, bariatric surgery. Oh, oh yeah. That which is so saturated in diet culture, unfortunately. I mean, the, yeah, again, we could have like five podcasts on that. Yeah, no, I'm serious. Like it's a, yeah, I have a lot to, a lot to say about that. Yeah, I feel very similarly similarly about the medical field. They're very saturated in diet culture. And I mean, I have clients who are physicians. They got no training on this. Yet these physicians are dishing out, not my clients, but <laughs> other physicians are dishing out to other clients this kind of crappy advice um, that's very um, steeped in their own um, anti-fat biases and their own uh, beliefs about diet culture. And in some cases, it's products that they're pushing. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, and so it just really compounds, like all the, 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 the belief that it's, I'm just lazy. What I found in my clients with binge eating disorder, they're the least lazy people I know, because they are killing it in every other area of their life. And they're working their tails off trying to figure out this food thing, 
they just can't figure it out. And I'm like, yeah, of course not. It's because it's a brain disorder. It's not your fault. It has nothing to do with willpower. Let's get you the right treatment so you can get help and healing. Yeah. I love that you said that. I often say that to people. I'm like, you have tried everything on this planet for years to try to get a hold of this. Like, you're not lazy at all. Like, you've been struggling. This is a lot. Like, what? No. I know. Look at the evidence, people. Look at the evidence. Yeah. It's it's embedded so much, you know, that fat equals lazy, smelly, stupid, you know, and I'm for those of you who are listening, I'm in a fat body myself, and I am one of the least lazy people that you would meet. <laughs> and I have a huge, very strong work ethic, and um, I am highly intelligent, clearly, <laughs> and I kill it in every area of my life, and I actually have positive body image. And so, and I smell nice. <laughs> I meant all of that. So, so, um, yeah. And so I think that it's, um, you know, all of those, um, all of those myths need to be debunked. Um, cause that's what they are. They're myths. No, they absolutely are. And I mean, this is why I brought you on to talk about like, what were these things out there? Like how, how do we start having these conversations and getting people to really hear things? Because I think they are so noisy you know that eating disorder voice and the critic is so noisy in everyone's mind and it's so hard even maybe the hurdles to people even to come into treatment like oh no I'm not sick enough or I don't really have that oh for sure there's have you uh, I'm sure you're familiar with um Dr. Gaudiani Jennifer Gaudiani's book sick enough that's good almost anorexic by Jenny Schaefer is also a really good book um too so yeah it's it's all all good. Again, five podcasts we can talk about. That's just the medical profession and bariatric surgery. I mean, that's the whole thing. So yeah, I'd, love, I'd actually love to have you on just to talk about that one topic. Um, I think I'm down. Let's do are. it. <laughs> no, it's it's a lot. Um, and I have, I've worked probably like you. I've worked with people who have had it in the past and come see me. I have had people who've worked with me and then chose to get it. So I have a lot of very different perspectives on it. So, All right. Well, I know we're getting to time here. And like I said, I'm definitely going to have you back on to talk about this uh, topic. Um, any last final words for people before we end? Um, just remember that you are deserving of help. You are so deserving of help. Whatever your level of struggle you're, with food, eating and body image is you are so deserving of help and it is not your fault. It is so not your fault. So, okay. So how can people find you? Uh, I'm, uh, I'm all over Instagram at Dr. Marianne Miller. Um, you'll see my funny dancing reels and it makes you smile and it makes me smile. I like watch them myself when I'm like, and it makes me laugh and smile. Um, and, uh, I'm, I'm on my website. Uh, I have a, a very active blog, um, Dr. Marianne Miller, and I have a Facebook group that people that's free that people can join It's called redefining relationships with food and body. And, uh, they're welcome to join. I have a lot of resources there as well. So. 
said, that'll all be in the show notes as well. So Marianne, it has been such a pleasure. I am so glad we connected and you were able to come on. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for all of the information. I'm honored, Christine. I appreciate it. This podcast is designed to provide accurate and authoritative information in regards to the subject matter covered. It is given with the understanding that neither the host, the publisher, or the guests are rendering legal, accounting, clinical, or any other professional information. If you want a professional, you should find one.